Hello, welcome to The Warpod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, Research Manager at the Oxford Research Group, and I'm Megan Kalsa-Peterson, Research and Policy Officer at the ORG. In this episode, we'll be joined by Hijab Shah from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, and Doris Kuhl from the Hague Centre for Strategic Studies, or HCSS. We will be discussing their work on partner legitimacy, security sector reform, and security force assistance. Enjoy the show. Hello, both. Thank you very much for joining us. So first and foremost, we want to avoid too much confusion over the terms in this podcast. So Hijab, you talk about security force assistance. And Doris, you work, your work is examined security sector reform. Can you both just briefly describe what you mean by those terms? Sure thing. Um, thank you so much, Abigail and Megan, for having me on and really excited to do this with Dorit. Um, so in our work at CSIS, our definition of security sector assistance is on purpose quite expansive. So we include both kinetic and non-kinetic assistance in this. Um, so that includes things like training, advising, education, exchanges, exercises, equipping, institution building, um, all of those things related to partner security forces. Um, and we do believe that it should also include things such as partner police and justice institutions, such as, you know, as these are integral parts of the security sector writ large. But, you know, in a nutshell, our um, definition of security sector assistance is on purpose quite expansive. Thank you both as well, Abby and Megan, for uh, inviting us. And I'm also very excited to be here together with Hijab. I would also like to note quickly that I am personally responsible for all views expressed and that these do not necessarily reflect the views either of HCSS or the Ministry of Defense or any other institution with which I am associated. Um, our definition of security sector reform, I'm going to follow up on what Hijab said, uh, is also quite expansive. So I won't repeat what she said because I think they're quite similar. In, in general, though, we refer to any efforts aimed at strengthening both the capacity and the capability of state institutions and actors that are responsible for the provision, management and oversight of security. So that could include, for instance, police and intelligence services. But in terms of management and oversight, it also looks more deeply at things like Ministry of Interior and Ministry of Defense um, and the judiciary, for instance. Perfect. I think it speaks to a wider debate within our field as well, where there are so many terms that are going around, often describing very similar things. Um, could you please, can you also both outline your own work in researching these terms, these types of international engagements over the last few years? My, in general, my uh, journey has been quite expansive and chaotic in a way as well. So as a student of military strategy, I have particular interest in the conduct of missions and the logic underlying them in more general terms. Um, and I've looked at the political decision making behind military operations, as well as operations in, in high intensity, that kind of high intensity military operations. More recently, I've been looking at the pre and post conflict phases of uh, military operations and the, the factors that are important for the success of these operations, as well as the factors that un undermine the success of such uh, operations. 
And this is really where my research into security sector reform began, looking more into those, like I said, pre and post phases of conflict. Um, and what I find really interesting about security sector reform is how it's kind of become a Swiss army knife, as one of my friends uh, once mentioned, in the sense that it's really a go-to mechanism for a lot of uh, states, which also is part of the problem, I think, that we'll be discussing throughout this um, podcast. So, yeah, it's quite a, been quite a broad research engagement. Um, and on our end at CSIS, um, kind of the, the genesis of our work around security sector assistance, particularly related to the United States, started with uh, the uh, FY 2019 reforms within the Department of Defense uh, mandated by the National Defense Authorization Act or the NDAA, which essentially took this huge a plethora of um, different authorities that focused on security assistance programming and kind of consolidated them. Um, and, and then, you know, there were a lot of, um, we basically within CSIS launched a series of projects and publications under uh, the secure, the cooperative defense project that I work on uh, with my colleague, Melissa Dalton. Um, so, you know, we've done a series of projects and publications related to security sector assistance, um, you know, with the research focusing on uh, those particular reforms that I mentioned, but also the strengths and weaknesses and how the U.S. has been implementing those reforms, um, how the United States can improve oversight and accountability within its own security assistance programming, um, and then also understanding how to get a better return on investment that the United States uh, puts within within its security partners, but doing so uh, in a manner that upholds norms around human rights, protection of civilians, law of armed conflict, uh, and, and similar principles. Thank you. And the reason that you're really on the podcast is that in the in the last few months, in the height of lockdown as well, you've both managed to put together some excellent reports, which build on stuff that you were already doing at CSIS, Ijab, and I'm sure build on work that you're already doing as well, Dorothy. So, Dorothy, you've you've recently co-authored The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, a framework to assess security sectors, potential contribution to stability. And Hijab, you co-authored Partners, Not Proxies, Capacity Building in Hybrid Warfare, which builds on a number of publications that you've already done, like you say, in collaboration with Melissa Dalton at CSIS. It'd be, it'd be great to get a sense of why you wrote these two most recent pieces and what you argue in both of them. So I don't know who wants to jump in first. Yeah, so um, our report that we wrote on um, capacity building in hybrid warfare, um, it started out as part of a project sponsored by um, the Canadian Ministry of Defense, actually. But what it really does is it marries the work that we've been doing within CSIS, both on security sector assistance, but also on um, gray zone or hybrid warfare. Um, and again, going back to definitions, just so that we're all on the same page, um, we define um, gray zone warfare or hybrid warfare as efforts that fall between routine statecraft and, um, you know, all out direct military con confrontation. Um, so this particular brief examines the impact of hybrid warfare on U.S. and allied security partners, um, many of whom are quite vulnerable to targeting by hybrid actors such as China, Russia and Iran. 
Um, you know, these partners have to withstand tactics ranging from disinformation to cyber attacks to um, economic coercion to proxy warfare. So it, it's been a really interesting body of work. And this particular um, report also, you know, we were able to examine kind of the environmental context in which these um, tactics are used, uh, what the major threats are um, to the vulnerable security partners that we're looking at, and uh, what major challenges exist to building these partners' capacity through security assistance. So we we closed the report out with a series of um, recommendations and guidelines for a principled approach towards building partners' capacity to withstand um, hybrid warfare threats. Um, and, you know, these range from recommendations on how to select and invest in partners uh, to, you know, how to make sure we're still upholding norms and principles around human rights, protection of civilians, etc. And then most importantly, um, ensuring that partners are truly treated as partners and not used as convenient proxies. That's obviously a pretty significant line, uh, a thread that runs through um, the report. So um, it's been really interesting working on these issues. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can continue doing so. Really, really interesting, uh, Hijab. Thank you. Yeah, so our report is actually also a um, request from the Ministry of, of Defense and specifically Team Conflict Prevention. So uh, it kind of very, yeah, it very closely ties into the work that they're doing. But the interest is also based in the context of three broader developments. The first one is state fragility and how it's becoming a global security threat. Since uh, in 2018, around 1.8 billion people were living in fragile contexts, but it's expected that by 2030, this will reach 2.3 billion people. And there's a lot of risks involved in this kind of development, including, for instance, the rise of terrorism, migration, and the, the consequences of that. It could also mean that there's more drug or other unstable networks and dynamics. The second one is the, the increase in international engagement because of these threats and because of the rise of security uh, context, of a fragile context. And you can see, for instance, in 2018, almost or more than half than the global security sector reform funds went to these kind of fragile states and contexts. So it's a very relevant topic. Uh, the third development is that the observation that these efforts haven't really always brought the stability that they had intended to, um, which is really important because if these develop, if these type of efforts are increasing, then it's really important for us to know what factors into their success and what factors into the lack of success or their failure more um, generally. And this could either be because of a lack in planning or execution of the mission, but also because it takes place in often less than ideal security environments where the security sector itself plays a role in sustaining instability. So this is really the starting point for our report, where we look, that, we look at security sectors and argue that security sectors themselves sometimes contribute to instability. For instance, like I mentioned, uh, the actors like police forces could be deeply entrenched in, for instance, criminal networks or other destable networks. They could be engaged in corruption or use excessive force against civilians. And in these type of situations, if security sector reform engages with those security sectors, it could actually risk undermining rather than promoting security. 
So our argument is that the first step is to really look at the structure of a security sector and the dynamics underlying it. And we argue that based on three distinct characteristics, which are ability, motivation, and legitimacy, a security sector either contributes to stability or doesn't, and also in in different ways. Um, We base, we use these three characteristics that are in turn rooted in six principles, generally known principles of good governance, but I'll state them for, um, for those who don't know, which are effectiveness, inclusiveness, rule of law, accountability, transparency, and responsiveness, also some of the points that Hijab already made. Then we mapped these principles on eight relevant proxy indicators and then onto 82 countries. And what was really interesting is that we found we were able to build a typology of different security sector types. So the the different dynamics underlying security sectors and how they contribute to or undermine stability. And these are the criminal, repressive, oppressive, the fragmented, transitioning, and stable. And based on this, we make two recommendations. The first one is that it's really important for political actors or political decision makers in in military, uh, as well as in, in governments, to look at the security sectors that we're engaging with before we decide to engage. And then based on this recommendation, we also state that it's really important to to build and to shape the security sector reform or the mission according to the type of security sector and the particular challenges that the security sector poses for for society writ large. That's incredibly interesting. And I think there are so many parallels to the work we've been doing as well at ORG over the last year, especially. Um, And something I found of particular interest to our own work is the importance we both place on the legitimacy of partners both in avoiding street fragility, like you mentioned, Doris, but also in creating resilience against the hybrid threats of potential ad- adversaries, like you mentioned, as well as each other. And like I said, it's something we've been looking at ourselves over the last year as well, as we've been examining the UK's approach to mitigating against risks um, that come from working with partners who lack leg- legitimacy around the world. We recently released a report called Forging a New Path for Artizing Protection Civilians in the UK's Response to Conflict, where we find that the UK has several processes in place to mitigate against these risks to civilians, um, both at the strategy level, but also in programmatic levels. But these are often outdated or they're too limited in their focus to be really effective. Um, and there's little focus on measuring legitimacy of partners before you engage in a partnership. So I'd like you both to describe why you think this is such an important concept to um, working with partners and making an effective partnership as well. Um, so, you know, we look uh, primarily at the U.S. context within CSIS um, and within kind of that context, uh, partners have a pretty significant role in furthering U.S. interests and maintaining kind of a more favorable balance of power. Um, within U.S. national security strategy, you know, the first uh, kind of priority area that's listed is great power competition against competitors like China and Russia. And then the second thing that's listed is the importance of working by, with, and through partners. Um, so, you know, partners are often at the front lines of both conventional and uncon- and unconventional conflict. And, you know, the, the legitimacy aspect uh, becomes a pretty significant factor in how uh, and it, it can potentially also impact uh, the United States uh, and, you know, the broader sort of alliance network. Um, so partner legitimacy, again, you know, vital to ensuring that we're upholding principles around human rights and so forth, um, but also to prevent vulnerability to narratives that actors such as, you know, China and Russia, maybe countries also like Iran, 
are trying to um, to employ to subvert broader interests. And so when looking at working with partners, we emphasize legitimacy as a pretty key area to consider uh, and to strengthen um, as well to ensure that, you know, again, not just the partners, but also the broader alliance network has the ability to counter threats, particularly from from the hybrid warfare context. Uh, again, narratives that, you know, um, certain countries might be using to delegitimize or in, in decrease the credibility of the broader alliance and partner network can be very powerful. Um, you know, so, so in order to ensure that we're strengthening against that and building resilience against that, um, you know, legitimacy is a, a pretty significant area um, for us to consider. Yeah, and I'll follow up on that and say that for us as well, legitimacy is one of the, well, as I mentioned, one of the three key components alongside ability and willingness to de- to determine the role of the security sector within the broader dynamics of a country. And legitimacy is super fundamental because it ensures that the population accept, accepts the security sector and the security sector actors and their authority to govern or to provide security. And this kind of trust and the good security sector, civil society relations and society in general is really important, mostly for two reasons. So both because then the citizens are more likely to obey orders. So if the security sector actors are trying to provide security, it's also a kind of two-way street. So the people have to be willing to obey those orders and also make sure that you know, they believe that the security sector actors, like the police forces, are really working in their interest. Um, And alongside that is the cooperation of the people, providing, for instance, information on security threats in, especially in a lot of countries where there are a lot of fragile contexts, the security sector isn't able to be everywhere at once. And in rural areas where the police or other forces might be absent, it's really important that people are aware of the security context and are also willing to provide that information. So the security sector actors and the security sector in general is able to work more effectively. And if you look at the, aside from also building and fostering more resilience against internal and external pressures, you can also see, if you look at the flip side, what happens when there is a lack of legitimacy. And based on our research and the security sector types that we identify, you can see that two, it has kind of two dynamics. So either it creates an oppressive security sector or a fragmented security sector. And based on our findings, both of both of these have low legitimacy and then depending on their relative ability and willingness, have different impacts. So the oppressive security sector, because it lacks legitimacy, it rules mostly by coercion rather than consent. So it uses a lot of excessive force to maintain control, for instance, in South Sudan or in Pakistan. And in the second case, in the fragmented security sector, it also has low legitimacy, but because it tends to also lack the ability to provide security, for instance, the means or capability otherwise, the coordination, for instance, it loses control to non-state actors. And these non-state actors over time can become or can be perceived as more legitimate and have the trust of the population and their cooperation, which challenges monopoly on the use of force by the security sector itself. And this is, for example, in Mali or Nigeria, where 
non-state groups, which could include self-help groups, have more legitimacy in the population itself, uh, by the population. And in some cases, this can foster stability in particular smaller contexts, for instance, in a city or a town or in a community. But if you look at the overall broader context, it might actually undermine stability because it creates this fragmented order in which each each section um, is kind of competing against each other. So for many reasons, legitimacy is really one of the fundamentals for a security sector to be able to contribute to stability. Thanks, Doris. I think I think you really speak to um, to something that we've also noted in our own work that we've seen this like this continued narrative that we get to pick between a practical approach where we we have short-term objectives that we address a terrorist threat or or in a hybrid context where we address an adversary and then a principled approach where we do that later where we build lasting political legitimacy and I think what your three reports do really well is say, no, a principled approach is exactly in our national objectives, that we can't do those things unless we also look at how to have a principled approach which champions human rights, which looks at long-term peace and stability. I, I wonder how, what the importance that you place on legitimacy means for how states like the US, the UK or the Netherlands should engage with partners and what it means for how we should change the current approach. Yeah, I think uh, legitimacy, like you mentioned, is really one of the key components that is often overlooked or or is something that tends to be more part of, you know, we'll do that later or we'll do that after the threat is kind of disappearing or, or there's more stability in the country. But what we find, and I think what we all have agreed on so far, is that legitimacy isn't something that should come after the after the mission, but is really a key component uh, within the mission itself, and even before there is instability in a country, as as a way to maintain stability. And one of the key things that we've also addressed in our report, and one of the recommendations, is that it's important to look at how we value and look at security sector reform and the strategic implications, and that it's really not always this Swiss army knife that we can employ in any fragile and insecure or unstable context. And based on, on the findings so far, I think it's really important to look critically at both our past and present missions and within those particular contexts, because of course it's very context driven. So legitimacy is important in all contexts, but in different shapes and forms. So it's still important to look at the, country that you're that you're actually engaging in um, and to look within those countries at what are the drivers of instability and how they interact with the security sector because in some cases security sector reform may not actually be the best option to bring stability and especially if we're talking about legitimacy then in those cases maybe kind of bottom-up civil society interactions are more effective for instance building the the relationships between civil society and the security sector that could actually foster long-term stability and not just combat an immediate threat. Some of the the things that could be important to look at are, for instance, the participation of the community within the security sector and their ability 
to contribute in the decision making to make sure that you know the security s- sector forces are also people that they accept and trust and you can see in some cases that police forces have been engaged in in so many past controversies or for instance used excessive force that the population doesn't trust them as the guardian of security and you know that's not very likely to bring stability so yeah like i said participation is important but also inclusiveness and accountability is really really important and also really something that's overlooked a lot of the times and what ties into that as well as transparency so people want to know why decisions are made and they also want to have a say in them. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it, it just means, and unfortunately maybe, or it brings a lot of troubles with it as well, but we have to really reassess how we've conducted mission in the pa- missions in the past and how we're going to conduct them in the future. And that's not just in the benefit of those countries, but it's also in our own benefit. Because in the end, you know, if you conduct a mission more effectively and bring stability, within those countries, then that will also seep into, into our own uh, national security is- interests. So it's really a, um, a two-way street and it's really in the benefit of yeah, both parties. Yeah, so I would agree with pretty much everything that Dorad said. I think, uh, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, a lot of the issues around um, transparency and accountability are, are, you know, super important to pay attention to, particularly in, uh, in, in security partnerships, um, you know, sometimes these issues may be ignored for convenience or, or, um, for, for the speed of getting things done. Um, and it's so important to make sure that these issues are, are kind of built into the processes that we have for security partnerships. Um, you know, I think you've covered so much ground there, Dorit. So I'm, I'm actually going to point to a slightly different, from a different angle, looking at legitimacy. Um, and that's uh, looking at kind of the legitimacy of the donor, so to speak. Um, so, you know, the, the, whether that's the United States, the UK, someone within another country within that broader alliance. Um, and again, kind of going back to the point of, you know, the importance of treating a partner like a partner and not as a proxy or a pawn. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the, the U.S. has a particularly uh, poor record when it comes to um, partnering uh, with countries and, and, and kind of mistreating them a little bit. Um, you know, so from examples like Afghanistan in the 1980s to more recent examples of partnerships with the uh, Kurds in Syria, um, you know, the, the, the perception and the legitimacy of the U.S. has suffered. Um, as a good partner in the security assistance realm. Um, and, you know, this is not great because again, it not only does it damage security partner relationships, but it also prevents then, you know, more, um, it, it, it's an obstacle to stability and resilience moving forward. Um, so, you know, underlining, um, this issue, it has been pretty important for us in our research to make sure that uh, we are not casting our partners as our pawns and, and ensuring that they are, uh, you know, treated well and that the partnership is meaningful and it is developed in such a way that upholds um, uh, certain norms. But yes, uh, uh, the U.S., for example, has a long way to work uh, in order to get its own legitimacy back. Can I just say one more thing there that I also, yeah, I agree with uh, with you, Hijab, and like I said, the the society has to make has to trust 
that security actors are working in their favor. And if the provider or the support to those security actors is a very politicized party or, you know, an actor like the United States in some cases that has a particular interest, then that seeps down to the security sector forces like the police as well. And this is one reason why in our report, we also emphasize that all these factors like ability, legitimacy has to be both at the institutional and the individual level. So it's really important that the security sector as a whole is trusted by society, but also individual security actors. And, you know, our engagement with, I think that's also a really critical point that's sometimes overlooked. Our engagement with a security sector also influences how that security sector is perceived. And that isn't always in our favor if we want to bring stability. And we tend to sometimes forget our role in influencing the perception of others. And I think hijab, you know, it's really, really um, important. And thank you for pointing that out because it really matters. And we can't just, you know, engage somewhere and expect the dynamics to change, not to change. The perception that these societies and these countries have of us will reflect on our partners as well. So we have to be, we have to be careful with that. I think that's definitely true. And I think also, I think it's important to remember that when countries like the UK and the US engage and if they support partners on the ground who then don't have the democracy, it will reflect badly on the donor countries like the UK and the US for a long time to come. Um, it's something we've been looking at in our report as well and how the UK often talks about having this brand of British training, but it doesn't seem to have very much clarity about what that means or how, like, what values it's trying to push for when it's engaging. And so I think, like you say, it is really important to have that very clear understanding of what values you're trying to push and then sticking to them. And it's very tempting, I think, in gray warfare when you're competing against, competing against adversaries like Russia and China, where you don't have the same internal need to stick to values like human rights and to have those kind of um, principles, but to just stick to ours, because that is how you distinguish yourself from being um, like those, those, those that you're competing against. I think something else that the UK has to do a lot better as well is having a stronger conflict analysis, like you mentioned as well, Doris. It's often just like a very short analysis of the legal risks of intervening or like of the political the risk that could come from the legal um, transgressions that might happen if you support a partner who doesn't do the right thing. There's no wider conflict analysis and that's definitely needed, I think, in the UK as well. It'd be great to hear from both of you how optimistic you are that the states that you're talking about might actually respond to your recommendations. Um, yeah, I unfortunately am not very optimistic. Um, you know, it's partly a factor of the political environment we're in, uh, which is a pretty significant factor, um, and partly just the, the issue set at hand, which is quite complicated. So, um, you know, even if we were in a perfect situation, it would still take uh, a while for us to rectify some of these um, kind of obstacles in order to, you know, get to better legitimacy to create the change that we want to um, want to have, have better oversight, have better transparency, etc. I think that countries like the United States and the UK have a lot of soul searching to do at home as well before they can repair the damage to their credibility and earn back the trust of their partners. And then, you know, partners um, have a ways to go. It depends again on, on who the partner is, but in the context where we look at partners that are kind of at the front lines of um, hybrid warfare in particular, there's a lot to be done still, not only from a capacity building perspective when it comes to things that are more obvious, like um, conventional capacity building or cyber capacity building, but also, um, you know, ensuring that they will continue to 
focus on the legitimacy capacity building side of things to um, build in processes that may not be institutionally obvious within partner countries um, around transparency, around um, you know, um, accountability for, for, um, more legitimacy related issues. So yeah, all that to say, unfortunately, not very optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, also not very optimistic. I mean, there are definitely some changes being made and I think our research, you know, and, and in, in broader terms, research on the topic shows that there is at least this interest and a growing understanding of the problematic, which is often the start to building solutions. I mean, you have to know what the problems are before you can improve them. So, you know, that step is is being taken and, and that's a good start. And within the Netherlands, for example, like I mentioned, the team conflict prevention that really strives, you know, to push to push the in the political realm, but also the military realm to suggest that these operations and military operations are not always the best way to bring stability. And that it's also in our benefit to do conflict prevention, you know, and, and to engage before a conflict really escalates. And because of the political nature of these type of operations, we tend to only really engage once the conflict has kind of erupted and people are really aware of the you know, severity of the situation. But in a lot of cases, I think we would have, it would have also been in our benefit if we engaged before the conflict erupted and, and, you know, not only for the country that we're hoping to bring stability to, but also for ourselves as, as partners, it's safer, it's cheaper. It's, you know, there's just a lot of benefits to it from a very strategic perspective, but also from a humanitarian perspective. So in that sense, there is some development, but again, like hijab also said, it's a very political thing. And, even if there is more awareness, this isn't always the problem. You know, there might be other drivers that determine whether particular missions are undertaken. And I think this is also one of the biggest problems because it's one that is most entrenched and difficult to address. And another factor, to call it going back to the idea of legitimacy, in some contexts, if legitimacy is what's missing, you know, and if, if that's the way to bring stability, then maybe it's not our role to bring that legitimacy because the very act of us trying to improve legitimacy in a particular context could undermine it. And that's where this, it becomes especially complex because if, you know, the legitimacy or any other drivers of instability are not being addressed by the country itself, but we're also not able to bring it, it we have to really think creatively about how we can, how we can improve that situation and how we can bring uh, stability in the long term, which ties into a last point that I want to make about long-term involvement. A lot of these problems and stability, fragility, the, the dynamics underlying a security sector require a really, not necessarily intense, but a very long-term develop, long-term engagement because it requires building this trust building, really understanding the dynamics and knowing where our role is within changing those and also knowing kind of where the, where the turning points are, you know, what we can and can't influence. And these type of long-term engagements are politically and financially and for many other reasons just not very likely and haven't been in the past. Hopefully 
they will be in the future, but perhaps that's a bit too optimistic to say at the moment. I think it's really interesting. It definitely raises a lot of parallels to the UK as well, where I think there's currently the integrated review going on, which is trying to figure out um, how the UK is going to engage over the next five years, but also going beyond that. It does seem like an opportunity to engage, but it's unclear how much they're going to actually um, include external feedback. And so even though we're having these discussions, and even though I think these kind of discussions are reflecting a lot of work going on in our sector at the moment, it's not really clear how much that's going to be valued uh, or taken in during the integrated review. And also, it seems like there's such a focus on Russia and China in the UK's um, projection of the future that it fails to recognize that those will still be competed against through SFA and through remote warfare. Um, and so there's not really a understanding of those risks being integrated into the understanding of the UK's foreign policy in the next five years. Definitely. I don't know whether we want to go for a full podcast and not mention COVID. Part of me wants to, but maybe we should just briefly mention how we think these activities will be impacted by the global pandemic. I'm also happy not to. <laughs> no, I think it's an interesting development, actually. And, you know, Right now, we don't know exactly what the effects will be, but it's likely to be something long term. So in my opinion, it's relevant to mention. I think two of the really important trends, which are the increase in conflict that's likely to occur and that has already to an extent occurred, um, especially the fact that it will disproportionately affect vulnerable populations and populations that might already be at risk of conflict. And it could also exacerbate conflicts already ongoing. And the second trend is a decrease in budget. So I, I think we can, we've all read about how, you know, militaries are forced to kind of make strategic choices and, you know, how COVID will impact the, the decision making and in the Ministry of Defense in not just the Netherlands, but globally. And in, yeah, in my view, these two trends can interact in different ways. And there's a lot of predictions about the, the future and influence of COVID on security sector reform or security force assistance. I really think it could go in three directions. And this is me just, you know, throwing my thoughts out there. So the first one is that there's more security sector reform. The reason I say this is because the, there's already been a lot of instability as a result of the security sector being, being engaged in kind of these lockdown, lockdown and enforcement mechanisms that have undermined public trust in security sector forces in contexts where this trust is already very fragile. For instance, in South Africa, the police, you know, were rounded up homeless people and kind of crammed them into a soccer stadium and put, assigned 10 people to a tent and kind of kept them, kept them within this, this area. The same in the same way in, for instance, Pakistan or in India, the police are relying on public humiliation to force people indoors, while in Brazil, the police is also being using excessive force in these mandatory quarantine measures. So the trust has really in, been impacted in these countries uh, between this, the society and the security sector. So that in, on the one hand suggests that security sector reform will be more important to bring back that trust. On the other hand, you could also say, which is a second possibility, that there will be less security sector reform, and this primarily because of the decreased budget and maybe the, the desire either politically or strategically to focus more on other 
conflicts or other operations that have more of a national security priority in, in, in that sense. And this could be a very dangerous development because I think it's much easier for countries to pull back on security sector reform missions than it is on other more high intensity kind of uh, military operations, which means that there might not be a strategy behind this withdrawal. So it could be kind of a rapid withdrawal of all security sector reform missions currently ongoing, which could have really long-term implications that are, you know, that are not being taken into account. Another development or another prediction, another way in which these two trends, so the decrease in budget and the increase in conflict, could impact the future of security sector reform is that it might force us to think more creatively. So because of this lack, because of the decreased budget and the, the higher need for security sector reform, we might, for instance, you know, try and enhance the strategic and flexible planning or use the limited capabilities in a more effective way. And in some ways that could also benefit security sector reform and stability more generally, because it might push us to integrate these missions more um, or within the operation itself, but also to work more closely with, for example, the host nations and our partners uh, so that they can do a lot of the, the groundwork, which in, in the long term might benefit, for instance, building legitimacy because we would be less involved, but still provide the, the support to those forces. And I think it's too, we're too early in the stage to, in the, in this sort of impact of COVID stage to really make an accurate prediction, at least in my perspective, of how it will impact security sector reform or security force assistance. But yeah, I think it could go in one of these three directions and in, in all of them, it definitely has a lot of implications and a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of factors that we really have to consider. So it's not something to be taken lightly. In my opinion. Um, so, Doroth, when you mentioned um, the public hum- humiliation uh, aspect of, of the um, of certain countries, actually, I'm sorry, this is probably a little bit inappropriate, but I, it reminded me of this um, video that went viral in Colombia where, uh, you know, when they're ticketing someone who's not wearing a mask, they like reenact the dancing pallbearer meme with like the electronic music blaring in the background. For those of you who are familiar with that meme. And so they'll like act that whole thing out before the police hands them a ticket. I'm happy to send you guys the link. It, it is pretty funny, but it does point to the fact that, you know, doing public humiliation like that, um, you know, probably is not uh, looked at very favorably within the population. Yeah, so going back to the actual question, the impact of COVID-19 on, um, you know, security in general, unfortunately, COVID-19 is empowering authoritarianism um, and, you know, decreasing, at the same time, decreasing the credibility of actors like the United States, the UK and others. Um, so you know, we, we touch upon this in the report, um, that we wrote on, you know, that's titled Par- Partners Not Proxies. But essentially, uh, because we're in this environment with COVID-19, it's, um, augmenting the capability of, you know, actors again, like China and Russia to use hybrid warfare tools, coercive tools, um, under the latitude that is granted by a military crisis response or emergency laws um, that are really intended to battle the pandemic, but they're being used, um, you know, to do things like shutting down protests, 
tracking people under the guise of contact tracing and so forth. Um, you know, there's also been um, Chinese cyber attacks uh, on uh, targeting vaccination research, which is definitely very troubling. There, it's also been a blow to the credibility of uh, particularly the United States. First, because the U.S. response itself has, uh, you know, given ample um, <laughs> fodder for uh, rivals to kind of, uh, you know, delegitimize the United States. But then also because uh, you have... Um, campaigns uh, during this time that are quite effective at targeting U.S. credibility. Um, there's a Chinese YouTube video uh, that on the surface is kind of a pretty funny, lighthearted video. It's a Lego stop motion video that, um, you know, shows uh, the, there's the, there's these Chinese scientists and there's the Statue of Liberty and they're, you know, arguing against each other. But it essentially shows the U.S. in a very negative light. Um, particularly with regards to its, re its response to COVID-19, um, but more broadly targeting U.S. legitimacy and U.S. credibility. So all that to say, you know, the U.S., uh, for instance, is already not great at countering hybrid threats, particularly when it comes to the information operations arena. Um, and COVID-19 has only made it that much more difficult. Um, so in a nutshell, you know, with the current environment that we're in, threats are increasing, but, um, you know, efforts to counter those threats are, are not even close to being matched. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, again, agreeing with Doris, like these are, these are going to be, um, issues that we, are probably not yet seeing the full results of, I think, but we'll probably, you know, in a little while, really see how these um, these things have an impact um, on all of us. Just a little quick thing. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt again. <laughs> um, yeah, I just building on what you said also about how this impacts and, and reinforces authoritarianism. It's, I think this is also maybe an interesting point that, it could also give countries like the United States a kind of excuse to go, you know, to go to go and, and engage with another country under the guise of security sector reform, security force assistance, bringing stability, but that it really falls into more of kind of a hybrid, you know, hybrid warfare or a strategic uh, choice than it really does trying to impact the secure how the security sector engages with COVID and tries to, yeah, in, tries to bring stability. So that maybe that's also an interesting development that we could see happening. I think I can only echo what you guys have been saying for the UK as well. I think you made all the right observations. I think in the UK, what we've seen is that everything has been stopped when it comes to remote warfare, or at least a lot of the programs that the UK was doing. But we fear that in the future, it'll be picked back up because it's seen as the low cost and low risk form of engaging. So when the budgets, like military budgets are pressed because of COVID, it'll be the easy solution without a due consideration of the risks that come along with it. Um, so it's definitely something to look out for in the future. I think that's all of our questions. So unless any of you have any final comments to make. I think the the idea of this light footprint is interesting because in reality, it has a much less than light impact. So that's what I'll end on. I think that's very, very true. It's something you've been saying in our report as well. It might be light for the people who are in the UK and for the soldiers who aren't deployed and the U.S. and the Netherlands, but the civilians on the ground, it's not a light form of engagement. It's very much a real thing on the ground. All right. Thank you very much um, for this really interesting discussion. It's been fantastic. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in as well. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Uh, for those of you who want to read more in depth about the topics we've covered, we've put links to any research mentioned and perhaps a YouTube video or two in the episode notes. 
Um, if you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare program and the ORG, you can subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the bottom button on the top of our page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at ORG info and at remote underscore warfare. And you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast via charge by following the link at the top of the page. Thank you for listening. Bye.